and welcome to the All Roads Podcast, where we talk about anything and everything related to ancient Greece and Rome. Where are your hosts, Dr. Sam Kindick and Sam Hahn. Good evening and welcome to the first episode where we start a podcast. It's true. And we talk about Percy Jackson. Um, Sam, should we introduce ourselves to our, 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 our wonderful listening audience? We probably should. And as we uh, were, were discussing a few minutes before we uh, went on air, it's confusing because there's two of us and we're both named Sam. Yeah, now it's kind of messed up that our parents chose the same name for two yeah. different people. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have cool nicknames. Uh, well, I guess, yeah, Sam is the cool nickname for Samuel. But uh, I'm uh, I'm Dr. Sam Kindick. I'm a Roman historian. Uh, I work and teach at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I, uh, you know, my academic specialty is in the Roman poet Ovid. Uh, but I have to do, you know, a little work here, a little work there. Work, do some work on Greek tragedy. Interested in uh, late Roman history, the the late antique period. Uh, but yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just here for the lols, and I love it all. <laughs> well, you've been doing this a lot longer than than me, and are a much more of an expert than I am. Um, I'm the other Sam, and I have a master's degree in in classics that i received from the university of colorado um, i've been studying the classics for a long time i took latin in middle school and have been engaging with um, the great books tradition for um, really my whole life so um, this is something that i've always enjoyed and will continue to enjoy even though i don't do classics professionally like dr sam on the other microphone I'm trying to make up a rhyme earlier uh, today with, you know, like I got two turntables in the microphone. I got, <laughs> I got, two, I got two Sam spitting on the microphones. We can cut that. But speaking, <laughs> or not. But speaking of the great books tradition, Sam, Percy Jackson, right? This yeah. is, this is for many people, a, their sort of introduction to, not just classical mythology, but their introduction to the world of the Greeks and the Romans. And I know now it's been 20 years uh, since these books started first coming out, 2005. So almost 20 years, which is crazy. Um, but I think this is a great place to start the show because it's, again, it's the, the sort of jumping off points. And you know, a lot of the students come to my class. And when I pull them, whether it's a, a myth class, a literature class, a history class, so many of them are there because they they read Percy Jackson and it sort of piqued their interest. Uh, so maybe maybe a good place to start is, you know, what what piqued your interest? What got you into classics? Because uh, I don't think it was Percy Jackson. No, it wasn't. You know, I, I was just old enough to have missed the Percy Jackson books until now. Uh, and I'm really excited to have actually read it. Um, I've heard so much about it. My wife is a big fan of the series. Um, you know, my introduction really, you know, like a lot of people came through school reading, you know, the various kind of compilations of of myths, um, you know, Dolores, um, Edith Hamilton. Um, I also distinctly remember when I was a freshman in high school being in English class and we read an abridged version of the Odyssey. And I don't really remember all that much from that kind of first reading of of Greek epic, but I do remember one class when we were talking about um, Odysseus spending time in the cave of Calypso. Uh, one of the guys in the my class wrote in huge letters in his notes, sex, um, and kind of destroyed all, all sorts of decorum in the class, um, you know, and he's, he's not wrong. No, it's, it's yeah, exactly. He's not wrong. Um, and yeah. And since then, you know, I've I've been interested in yeah, kind of the Greek and Roman world, um, kind of ever since that time. Not not because of him writing sex on his notes, but um, I think the stories are so fascinating. Um, and yeah, I've I've tried to be a student of them um, for many years. Well, I think what that's something you? to. I was gonna say, I think that's something to circle back around to the whole, you know, sex, right? Because there's, I mean, there's a lot of sex and. That's one of the things that not, we don't not get. In per, not in yeah. Percy Jackson. 
Right. Exactly. It's uh, you know, the 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 mythological world has been neutered a little bit because the, the I mean the spoiler the Greeks and the Romans had a lot of sex. Some of it good, some of it bad. Uh, not all of it uh with consent, but it's it, it plays a a key role I think in 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 the mythic you know the mythopoeia. Um, and so maybe that's something that we can explore at some point, uh, not just, you know, sex in all capital letters, but well, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe sex in all capital letters. I don't know. Uh, I will say that I think this is something we can explore in our second episode because not, not to jump too far ahead, but, um, intergenerational conflict is I think at the heart of a lot of Greek and Roman myth and at very much the heart of this book, but I'll leave that, um, there, uh, Sam, what about you? What was kind of your introduction to the Greek and Roman world? Yeah, so I, um, my mother in college was a classics major. And she didn't become a professional classicist or anything like that. But, you know, when I was a kid, we, you know, we took a trip to Greece. We took a trip to uh, Italy. We, uh, we had books laying around the house that were, you know, classics themes. I also had Dallaire's mythology and now my son has it uh and it you know says on the the very first page sam the property of sam kindick or something written you know like a six-year-old would write it uh which is to say not well <laughs> um but yeah i mean that book it's it there's some big beautiful pictures in it but there's also a lot of text so it's there's something about the story that you know captivates a young person it's not just you know picture 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 i mean you you do have to sit there and patiently listen or read the story so that was that was there when i was when i was little uh, i took a class on greek and roman history in high school uh and it was it was kind of dry but i don't know it was just it was just fascinating to to learn about the greeks learn about the romans uh, we definitely read Edith Hamilton, uh, the Greek way and the Roman way, where some of our textbooks. Uh, yeah, and I, I just remember one night when I was, I guess, in high school, I had gone up to the attic and I my mom had like milk crates with her, her college textbooks. And I pulled them down and saw a bunch of, you know, uh, translations of 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 classics, classics, classics from the seventies. And I spent, I stayed up all night one night, just reading a bunch of plays of Aristophanes, the old comic playwright um, and talk about sex. I mean, that's, there's some sexy sex in Aristophanes or certainly yeah. sex references. Um, it's, it's racy. It's kind of like South park. Uh, but yeah, I stayed up all night and I read a bunch of these, these, these plays. And I was like, wow, this shit's great. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I went to college as a classics major, you know, I, I was a declared classics major from day one and I have not changed my major since, uh, it's been a long time. Uh, it's been, you know, 20 plus years and I'm, I've been a classics major ever since. So yeah. it's, it's, I, I find it hard to not, you know, once you, once you taste the forbidden delights of the classical world. It's hard to turn your back on it. Uh, it's 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 so good. And there are a lot of really special people, I think, who introduce us to the classics. Like for you, you know, coming from a parents, you know, for me, I think of like my 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 Latin teachers, um, you know, um, Mrs. Mueller and uh, Mr. Fabus. Um, who were so instrumental in teaching me Latin and just the, you know, the passion they had for their subject matter made me think, well, these people love this. I love this. Why don't I do the same thing? You know, and I did the same thing you did. I, I went into college at a clear classics major from day one. Um, and I never regretted that. Um, I've always, I've always loved reading Latin and Greek and thinking about these texts. Uh, and I'm excited to do that again with you in this podcast. Um, I will, I will note that my parents wouldn't let me take Latin in high school. So maybe this is my, uh, you know, my, my teenage rebellion, your you rebelliousness. Know. That's, that's I sh- why you I showed them. Latin, yeah. Active rebellion. I showed them, uh, sorry, mom and dad for outing you. 
but uh yeah here we stand or sit so i mean this this tradition of sort of taking the mythology from a former time i mean especially the the mythology of the greeks and the romans and sort of repackaging it and making it feel modern feel relevant uh it's not unique to Percy Jackson, right? Rick Riordan does a great job of it. And obviously he's, you know, you know, from a business point of view, sold millions and millions of, of copies and he probably does well. He probably doesn't need a podcast to make a living. Um, but he's just, he's, he's been so in- influential in reaching, you know, students who find their way into the classroom, into my class or to another class or, who simply just want to be part of this, this world. Um, but, it, but it's not right. He's not the first guy to do it as, as, as you pointed out uh, before we, we press the the magic record button. I mean, this dates back to, you said the Hellenistic period, but I would argue in the Hellenistic period, right. is sort of the, the period between the death of Alexander the great and uh, when the Romans take over the Greek world. So starting in the, the fourth century BCE, I would say it probably goes back to Hesiod, right? Who a, a contemporary of Homer. I mean, the, the yeah. theogony is our first mythic handbook in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. The, the theogony is yeah, really interesting text. I, I've always been an admirer of, of Hesiod and, and those kind of early pieces of, of Greek mythology. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of, you know, establishing the way the story goes, and that story is soon contradicted. Um, you know, looking at, you know, the people who have studied Hesiod, regularly Hesiod tells stories and then introduces facts later on that kind of undercut um, the narrative that's already been pre-established, the timeline, the way the world works. Um, you know, the the mythology is always kind of squishy a little bit right it's always malleable um again because i don't think it's exactly supposed to be a history per se right this isn't a a litany of facts that we're laying down so we understand what is the exact progression that happens i mean we see this in all sorts of you know creation myths if you want to think about the theogony as a you know of a establishing you know the who the gods are and how they came to be, you know, a story of creation and how the world um, became the way that it was, right? We, you can look at, you know, I think of like the Old Testament and Genesis and the way in which, you know, even the Old Testament, you know, undercuts the narrative that it establishes because it's trying to do something more than actually trying to establish a set history. Um, so, yeah, I think we can, we can thank Hesiod for, the existence of Percy Jackson today. <laughs> and, you know, um, I loved reading this because um, obviously Percy Jackson is a book that is very interested in the reshaping of myth, right? The obvious example is that Medusa scene, right? With all of the garden statues and a kind of retelling of a familiar myth in a very kind of memorable way. Um and again, Hesiod's mythology that he establishes in the Theogony and undercuts, you know, the, the ancient authors are constantly playing with their own myths as well. Um, again, my, my favorite example of this is um, um, your favorite author, Ovid, um, in his work, The Fosti. Um, he gives a new telling of the birth of Orion, right? Orion, this great... Um, figure of Greek mythology. Everybody's heard of it. People, it's his, his is one of the most easily recognizable constellations in the night sky, you know, and Hesiod apparently said that Orion is the son of Poseidon and Ovid comes in and says, actually, I've heard it told differently. Um, actually, he was the son given to an old farmer when the gods peed on the hide of a cow and buried it um, in the earth. And so Orion isn't the son of Poseidon. He's literally urine. Um, you know, there's all sorts of, exactly. Um, there's also really, you know, 
playful authors like Ovid do a really good job, obviously, of playing up the the story for some humor and undercutting tradition. Um, but you see this all the time, you know, going back to like the Hellenistic authors. There's a lot of attempt by scholars to be like, okay, here are all of these different accounts of this story. What is the right one? And of course, we know that there is no right version of any of these myths, um, which is kind of what makes them so special. Yeah, that's something that a lot of students that I uh, get um, in my classes, uh, they don't realize this, right? That there's there's not one version. There's not right. one one right version or one wrong version. Uh, every version is pretty much unique, uh, which is which is which is curious. I mean, they'll you'll, they'll be stories of the same character, but there'll be little sort of tweaks. Uh, there's no, there was no concern in the eyes of the Greeks or the Romans to sort of, you know, establish a, a single canonical text, right? Again, I, I work in the late antique period after sort of the, the fall of the Roman empire. That's something we see with Christianity. That's this sort of push mm -hmm. to let's literally all be on the same page. Let's figure out what these texts which which texts are canonical? Which texts uh, are not canonical? What do these texts mean? Uh, and this is this, this was something completely foreign to the the traditional Roman uh, and Greek religions. Where, for example, in uh, Homer Homer's Iliad, we we have mention of Oedipus, uh, King Oedipus, who's the hero of Sophocles's uh, Oedipus Rex. Uh, and in that version, we have a different sort of accounting of events than what we have in Sophocles' play, which is, you know, written down hundreds of years later. And, and of course, we know um, the story of Sophocles, uh, sorry, the story of Oedipus best from Sophocles. Um, but we can look at Homer, look at these, the, the Iliad, something written, um, you know, again, hundreds of years earlier and realize that there's, there's extreme mythic variation. Um, there's always this playing and, Sometimes like with Ovid, right, there's a playful engagement with the mythic tradition. Uh, sometimes in, in Greek tragedies, for example, we have a uh, intentional sort of uh, twisting of the Greek tradition, right? In uh, uh, Euripides' Medea, for example, uh, we think that Euripides invented the fact that Medea killed her own kids uh, intentionally. And there seems to be other mythic variations where the kids die or where she accidentally kills the kids or something like this. Um, but to sort of just tweak the story to have, you know, a mother killing their children, um, which is something that, uh, I think has connections to what we'll talk about in the second episode with, uh, intergenerational violence. Um, it's something the Greeks were concerned about, but it's, it's interesting that, you know, one small switch, the intentional killing of the children, from their mother. I mean, that, that's a, that's a game changer. The, and and yeah. ironically, the Athenians hated Medea, um, put on in, in 431, they got, they got last place in the, the competition. And it's for many people, myself included, it's like our favorite Greek tragedy, which is yeah. amazing that, that something can be received very differently than it was received in its time of publication or production. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see this all throughout too. There, there's all there's oftentimes an interest later on to fix, quote unquote, the mistakes in old stories. I mean, some are minor. You know, I, I always think about you know in the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. You know, Athens is a non-entity as like a player and. When it starts getting performed in Athens, it seems as if the Athenians start sneaking in themselves into portions of it just to get that little shout out to be like, well, of course we were there. Of course we were active. Like, look how good we are now. Surely we were big players in the Trojan War. Um, and you see that also, you know, an interest in audience of rereading and being dissatisfied with portions of the text, like the end of the Odyssey. Right. You know, Odysseus comes home from the Trojan War, you know, finds all of these young suitors trying to court his wife, you know, and slaughters them. 
And, you know, there's kind of a deus ex machina ending where Athena says, okay, stop fighting. We're not going to resolve this. Um, it's okay. And readers were clearly dissatisfied with that ending. And we're later like, no, Odysseus has to pay for his crimes um, against the people that he's supposed to look after. And so there is always this kind of interest in let's fix the mistakes um, either to get the ending that we feel like is just or right or happy or reflects that the history that we want to see um, kind of echoed in, in these earlier texts. That's, that's so it, actually I was, I was teaching this in class today. Um, that, no way. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, these things always work out these you know coincidences, but yeah. Right. Book, book 24 of the Odyssey, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't find satisfactory. You know, it's Odysseus comes home and he he, he murders everybody in book twenty two, and in book twenty three, uh, he has this you know this this moment with Penelope where his wife, where she tries to trick him, but then she recognizes him, um, and then they they hang out and catch up on you know twenty years of lost laughs. Mm -hmm. But uh, book twenty four is just this kind of like. And then, like these, the the dads of the guys of the Odysseus came to the house, and they, you know, the Odysseus killed. They came to the house. Then, then like everything was cool. And then, like Odysseus, like oh, by the way, he saw his father. He like saw everybody else, but like didn't see his father. So now he sees his father, and it, it, and it feels, I don't know, it's not, it's not sexy, right? It's you know, people have have you know tried to say that quant qualitatively, it's not as good um, as the rest of the Odyssey. Uh, obviously, you know, mm -hmm. that's a subjective thing, but right. so, so they try to get rid of the the last book of the Odyssey. Same thing with Virgil's Aeneid, um, yeah. mm -hmm. right? People, people didn't like it in the Middle Ages. They added a new book, right? Book 13, um, <laughs> because they wanted closure. They wanted more closure than uh, Virgil gave them. But it makes me think of, did you ever see uh, or read Game of Thrones? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. So, did you love the ending? I mean, it's been out so long yeah. now. We can. I feel like we no, can like of course spoil. Not. No, yeah, of no one likes not. the ending. No one likes the ending. Um, nobody likes Bran, and but it's it's right. The 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 series outpaced the books. So there's a this amazing opportunity, and for contractual reasons, it may not be possible. But if George R. R. Martin ever finishes the the books he could write a different ending. Right. Which is, I mean, and you know, it would be fascinating from a literary point of view. Cause he would, you know, he would have had, you basically had the, the series be like a trial, a trial audience. No one liked it. Let's try something different. Um, mm -hmm. If he's, unless he decided, you know, 50 years ago that this is how it was going to end, which may have been the case, but what a cool opportunity to, to, to write something different than, than what the, you know, the film adaptation or the TV show um, adaptation did. I don't know. That just made me just popped in my head. The sort of, we have this, these modern things too. People don't like how things yeah. end. Right. Well, and we we're constantly, you know, myth making, you know, I mean, I mean, I feel like this is something that everyone is aware of to a certain extent. And, and a lot of people spend, time thinking about nowadays like you know we have myths around you know the founding of the united states we have myths around you know our families and the way we operate and why we do things you know there's myth making happening you know there's you know myth making in in religion too right there there are all of these things right these are things that bind identity right you know when you think about kind of what is a purpose of myth it is you know this kind of establishing what are the values, what are the common stories that we tell each other to kind of unite us as whatever people group, be that, you know, a church, be that a family, be that a nation, right? And so, yeah, there there is always this kind of writing and rewriting of myth um, to to respond to a current moment. So what's the... I'm known for my seamless transitions, uh, as you know. Yeah. Uh, what's so? What's the what's the modern rewriting of myth in Percy Jackson? I mean, it's you know there. I think if you look at the history of sort of these mythic compilations, 
there are sort of trends and moments. Um, and I think Percy Jackson sort of started one. I mean, we've had uh, Stephen Fry, Stephen Fry's mythos and heroes and Troy retell these stories. Um, a new book, Gods and Mortals, just came out um, by classicist Sarah Isles Johnson. Um, but I think I think Percy Jackson sort of kicked off this this moment. So what what is it about Percy Jackson, or you know what? when we read Percy Jackson and it's, it's fascinating because it's again, almost 20 years old. So some of the, uh, some of the references are, are a bit dated at this point, which uh, is amusing. Uh, I don't think people use instant messenger anymore. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're ones to talk as classicists about dated references. Um, no, I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking about this today, actually. I mean, how often do you read something in a uh, classical text and there's some reference to a politician or to some sort of object and no one knows what it means. And the footnote, there's like a footnote that's just like, no one knows what this means, right? Like right. In, in 2000 years, how much of Percy Jackson, you know, they're going to talk about, uh, you know, Grover eating a, a Coke can or something. Uh, I mean, Coke, people probably know what Coke is, but, you know. Coke will still be around. Yeah, some, something like that. And they're like, we don't know what this means. Sure. Um, so like, what is it like, what do we get out of as readers, right? What's our connection to Percy Jackson? When we, when we pick up the book and we say, okay, you know, I bought this at Barnes and Noble, uh, or, or Amazon, wherever books are sold because the, the cover looks cool. There's like a, you know, a kid standing on the head of like the statue of Liberty looking thing, which is actually Poseidon, at least in my edition. Um, what do we get out of it? Why do we? Why do we care? Why are we invested in this, this, this mythic retelling? Yeah, I, I think, I think the opening of the book is such a, per, I mean, as classicists, we obsess over the openings of things, right? The beginning is the most important piece because it sets the tone. It sets the intention. It lays out all the themes, right? And, you know, Percy Jackson falls again into this tradition of 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 classical texts and there is this kind of again i don't know i i refer to it as like a democratization of mythology you know talking about you know what is the purpose of myth and antiquity right it is this thing that kind of binds a culture together right and, you know the greeks shared these stories even if they weren't from the same city state um you know, it, it's established a cultural identity and these myths inform the values and, you know, the, the mores, the, you know, the, the customs that they performed, um, but also was largely meant to, uh, you know, reinforce the current, the power structures as they were, right? You can look at Achilles and say, I am supposed to behave in a manner that is reflective of how, you know, a hero might behave, but I myself am not in the same position as Achilles, right? There's something that 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 Achilles is is greater than I am. And so I will never be an Achilles, but I can learn from Achilles. And something that I love about Percy Jackson is this invitation to be like, if you're a normal kid, just keep enjoying this book as a work of fiction. But if you're like me in a half-blood, like don't don't keep reading, right? You know, it's going to be, it's going to get too real. You're going to learn too much, right? And this, it is this invitation to be like, you can be Percy, right? It's the beauty of a lot of these, you know, middle grade books where, you know, you're being invited to put yourself in the place, in the shoes of the hero or the heroine, right? And and here we have, you know, the invitation. What if you too were a half-blood? Um, and, you know, Percy is is a kid who is really easy to identify with. Uh, for a lot of kids, right? He has his his faults and his foibles. You know, he has, you know, a learning disability um, and is just ultimately a very normal kid that lots of people can relate to. Not everybody, you know, can look at Achilles and be like, I know exactly what it's like to be in this guy's shoes. But I think a lot of kids can look at Percy. And I think that's what's so appealing is let's think about what would it actually be like to experience myth as real life um yeah and be invited into that story yeah and i think it's even 
um, I've I've got the book open in front of me and just just kind of rereading it. It it it's even a little farther, right? Where it's it's not just well maybe you are. There's this like strong suggestion that you probably are, right? I mean you you mm. you may be you may well be a half blood, which is, I mean as we we see in the book uh, and in the series and in the movies, maybe not always great. Uh, I think there are times that Percy would maybe wish that he weren't the son of Poseidon and the half brother of uh, the urine created Orion. But it's yeah, I mean it's it's yeah, I like that the democratization of of myth because I don't think we get that right in the classical world. Um, you might look at the novels, later Greek novels like Daphnis and Chloe, something like that, um, which is you know sort of about capital letters sex um right so if you're looking for something yeah. to read read over the you know uh the weekend or something uh Daphnis and Chloe pick it up but for from for so much of the ancient world right we have our our sort of literary and historical lenses are focused on fancy people and they're written by fancy people mm-hmm. um they're not about 12 year old boys who are dyslexic and have ADHD and can't stay in one school and come from a, a, a seemingly broken family. It's yeah. I mean, it, he's a man of our times, right? He's a hero of our times. Um, or at least for some people. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. That's, I mean, maybe that in its, you know, starting on page one, that's one of the sort of adaptations of 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 myth that we see in Percy Jackson. I mean, obviously, and we'll we'll get to this, um, you know, today and uh, in up subsequent episodes. I mean, there are mythological changes and tweaks and omissions and additions, but just on page one, it's it's fresh, right? It's new and it's yeah, as a a, a you know a 12 year old picking this up it's cool i mean i i uh i come from a, a slightly older generation i you know I, I read harry potter when you know i was a kid um well really when i was in high school i guess it came out um but he was closer in age to me and there was this hmm. i'm not sure i ever thought i might be a wizard uh because i was never um, page one wasn't like you might be a, a wizard gentle reader. Uh, right. But it was, you, you certainly imagined yourself just like 3000 years ago, you know, listening to the stories of Achilles told from a bard in your local, uh, you know, waffle house or whatever in Greece. Uh, you know, you might imagine that you too could be a, a killer of men. Yeah. It, it, I think, I think it's one of these things where I, a listener might say, well, this is obvious, right? Of course. Like I read Percy Jackson when I was a kid and I saw myself in Percy Jackson. This is not something new. Um, but I, I think it is like thinking about myth and retelling, just reemphasizing that point that we have so little of what was written in antiquity. Um, so little, so little has survived, you know, and we have, lots of stuff that was copied a bunch and a lot of one-off copies. Like that's kind of what we have It's kind of random snapshots of what was happening or these things that are just like staples that have been read for, you know, millennia. Um, and yeah, to, to get a, a work that is, yeah, kind of calling regular people into mythology is something special and something you don't see in the ancient world, at least not that I can think of. Um, and yeah, it's not it's not hard to see why people fell in love with this book. And and again, I think also just the author is has the tone of the best teacher that you had, which I think is also so special. Um, you know, there, you know. The the disguise, you know, Chiron is such an important figure early in the book and even, you know, guiding Percy throughout. And 
seems to me to be somewhat of a stand-in for the author um, himself. And, you know, and, and there is this kind of calling, right? Everybody knows that these myths are cool. The Minotaur is cool. Medusa is cool. You know, Procrustes, which is a myth that not lots of people hear, but that's a cool myth. A guy who tricks people into laying down into beds and either stretches them out or cuts off their limbs. What a wild story. Who doesn't love that? Um, it's, it's, so, it's so weird. Right. When right. I, you know, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll take a closer look at pro crusties. Um, it's a part of, he's, he's one of the like uh, six weird bandits and like rabble rousers that like Theseus defeats the Athenian, yeah. like mini version of Hercules. Yeah. But it's just like a guy who tricks travelers into laying down onto a bed and then either stretching them to fit the bed or chopping them to fit the bed. Right. What does that symbolize? Like I can understand like Heracles, you know, conquering the uncivilized worlds and man conquering beast and all this shit. But like a dude who tricks people into laying down on a bed and chopping them up. I don't know what that means. I'm not that smart, Sam, but I want to know. Well, I think, I think that's, you know, I'm not even commenting on like what what is its thematic relevance or what is the meaning of the myth. I think there is this this like there's all sorts of wild stuff in Greek mythology that it just sticks in your craw and there's a reason why people are fixated on it. And it's not the only mythology to have these sorts of images and you know compelling stories. Um but again, there's a reason why people are compelled to it because there are so many creative ideas. And I love that, you know, the author is kind of presenting this to us and saying, isn't this cool? Like, isn't that, doesn't this make a great story? But also it's calling us to ask a bigger question, which is this, you know, again, this is why I, I see, you know, the author, you know, sees himself as, you know, Chiron to, to a certain extent is this question of like, why does this matter in real life? Right. This is something that, that he asks Percy in the first chapter is, you know, they're in the museum looking at these things and he says, okay, can you explain why any of this matters? And for Percy, it's a matter of life and death, right? He's going to fight Medusa. It's going to be helpful if he knows the myth. So he knows actually how to defeat her. But also it's obviously a question to us as a reader is why do we care? The story of the Lotus Eaters is a fun story. The retelling as this casino um, is very, you know, interesting and memorable but why does it matter uh and i think the author does a good job of setting that up early on and kind of constantly calling us back to the question um because that's kind of you know in the end that is the question right when when the the true lightning thief is unveiled right when we see luke for who he truly is it is this question the gods are bad they don't care for us we're just repeating the same stories over and over. It's time for a reset. It's time for a restructure. We can leave all of this behind and start afresh, right? That is the like, that is the counter to why does this matter? And the, the you know, villain of the story says it doesn't. We need something new. And it is this question is like, do we need something new? Or is there something of value here still? Yeah, I mean a lot of a lot of great things there, Sam. The uh the first thing I was gonna say, I was just gonna point out that you have not seen the movie. I have not seen the movie. But no. I have I, we should probably let people know where we stand, right? You've read the first book. Yes. And only the first book at the time of recording. I've read a few of them, but not the entire series. So we may well be shooting ourselves in the the feet, the collective feet, and we'll be say say something, and it turns out not to be true. So we are we're dealing with uh, selective ignorance, I guess. Um, we're approaching this like a first time reader, at least I am. So yeah, I, I hope yeah hope that you can see see me, uh, dear listener, as an older version of your younger self when you first picked up these books. A noob. Um, Exactly. Exactly. And I, you know, 
and I really enjoy, I really enjoyed this first read through. I, I try and approach these things in a very with a very open mind, understanding the audience, understanding the intention, and really trying to, you know, read the book for what it is. Uh, but it's been fun bringing you know all of my classical training uh, to bear as I've I've thought about this book now that I've actually finished it. It's just important though that you, I mean, we we see this book through completely different eyes because for me. I know that Chiron is Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> you don't, you, I don't know what you imagine him to look like. Uh, but for me, I see a bearded James Bond glued to a horse. And there is tremendous wisdom and guidance in the figure of Chiron, but I can't not imagine Pierce Brosnan as Chiron. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I don't know who I pictured, but now that I think about it, I, I feel like I do see Mr. Fobbus, my my Latin teacher, very much in Percy's Latin teacher. So um I think we should do a separate uh maybe we'll do a a, a, a segment or a uh a type of show called Night at the Movies, and we'll just talk about the movie one because it's talk, it's a hot talk topic. About yeah, and talk about a work of reception, you know, a a movie that is reviled by the author, you know, a retelling of his myth that he completely disavows and is trying to write as the, you know, the new Disney show uh, comes out. So we'll be sure to watch that and give you all our thoughts on that when, once it actually, you know, comes to streaming services. Uh, but Disney, if you want to sponsor the show, uh, drop me an email at allroadspod at gmail.com uh (laughs) we're always looking for sponsors so to return uh i mean you said a lot of great things there um and this this connection this sort of tension between does this matter and should we i mean obviously for percy jackson it's life and death right i mean this this is also what i told my my parents uh during fall break of my freshman year in college they said you know why not business or law and i said it's a matter of life and death that i be a classics major and they they understood it um at least my human parents i don't know about i've 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 yet to be claimed by a a god but it's a fair question, right? And I think that we do right. get. I mean, this is, uh, this this uh, I, I get this from students. I did get this from my parents. Um, right. I mean, it's the like, question like, that everybody asks. Why of classics like, majors? Why exactly? What do you What do you do with a degree in classics? And and the answer. I mean, I don't want to go on a, a tangent. Rant is is anything, um, right? And there are studies to to support this, but right, like beyond what you do with a, a major at a university. Right. What is this knowledge about uh, a, a civilization or a collection of civilizations that lived 3,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago? I mean, it, it's a big range. It's a big geographic um, you know, sort of slash through the European, Asian, and African worlds. Like, who cares? Right. And I think that we get that right at the beginning of the book. And that, it is nice. There's a lot of sort of, I see a sort of inside classics kind of nods. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think you framed it nicely, right? Why does this matter? And to fast forward to the end, should, are, are we ready for a reset? I mean, not just a freshening up, but a sort of systematic, categorical, seismic shift. So what do you see? I mean, what do we, what does this, this, uh, this book tell us? I mean, why, who cares? I mean, I mean, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? You know, I think for me, when I think about, you know, what is the value? I think there are some people who will wrongfully say, right, this is the one right way, right? The Greeks and Romans had it right. And, you know, all other ways are wrong. They were the best of the best. And, you know, this is the pinnacle of humanity, right? You hear, you know, oftentimes fascists will adopt, you know, the symbology, the mythology of the Greeks and the Romans. And that's obviously wrong. 
right? It's not that the Greeks and the Romans were the best and the brightest of all of humanity. Um, I think I think we have to roundly reject that. And I don't think that that not being the answer means that these things aren't valuable. You know, for me, I think it's deeply personal. Like I, you know, classics was the thing that opened my eyes to think very carefully about a lot of things in just, you know, our modern world. I think what I love about classics and why I think it is so valuable is it is a way to reframe and reapproach your own current time and kind of bring old ideas to bear in the present. And not all the old ideas are good. There are plenty of old ideas from the Greeks and the Romans that we should be very eager to discard and not carry forward. Um, for me, you know, I, I left classics to go work in, in food systems, you know, sustainable, healthy, nutritious food. Um, and I, for me, my interest in that modern issue came from Virgil and Virgil's thinking about kind of the destruction of the kind of countryside, the farmland of Italy um, that he addresses throughout his poems. And it was something that I was very taken with and kind of led me to think about, this is a concern of antiquity. Do we fix this? The answer, of course, is no. Things are very bad and things need to be changed. And this engagement with ancient texts allowed me to think about and you know approach this modern topic and again i don't look to virgil to inform my work today but i think the spirit um of virgil as he looked at the issues of his own time have very much informed the spirit with which i try and approach my work um and again i think i think that's the beauty of classics it is ability to get outside of your own time your own context and understand, wow, people in the past thought very similarly to me and very differently and trying to kind of negotiate that and reinterpret, you know, I think that's also, you know, one of the beauties of reading the classics is this reinterpretation. Here's how the ancient audience understood the Iliad. How do I understand the Iliad? Once I understand how the ancient people read it, I can also look at it and say, there's so much here that it doesn't seem like people were all that interested in. And I'm very interested in that. And how does that inform my what I take away from this text? Um, so I, I think I think that it, the kind of active engagement with the past is very important. You know, some people refer to it as a conversation. You know, there's the old, you know, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. You know, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're constantly repeating history, constantly making the same mistakes. Um, but again, there is this importance of with engaging with the past and becoming a part of that conversation. And that doesn't mean buying into it whole cloth, but it does mean taking it seriously. And I think trying to understand yourself and your time better through it. There you go. How's that as an answer? It was great. I mean, it's, again, this is the, the frustrating thing about the classics for me is that there's, there's so much. Yeah. Right. I mean, as a field for, for people who aren't familiar with the term classics, we are sort of tasked with becoming experts on the history, literature, religion, philosophy, languages, cultures, everything of basically the Mediterranean world for like, I don't know, 3000 years. I mean, mm -hmm. depending yeah. how, I mean, you could, you know, you could tack on uh, the Egyptians uh, depending how far you push the, the Roman empire. If you go to the, the Eastern Roman empire till it's fall in 1453, I mean, it's, it's doubt. It's a lot of stuff. It's a it's a lot of stuff, um, and there's so much good stuff. And I think that you you hit on the the sort of it's 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 there's a it's relatable, right? And 
there's a connection. And this is why the podcast is called All Roads. Um, not only because of the the saying, right, that all roads lead to Rome, um, which is, you know, in a, in a way, a, a, a sort of a, a contact of the network systems in the Roman world, but also the literary connections. But so many things. I mean, we can talk about young adult literature written in 2005, and it has to do with Rome. I mean, and to understand that, we have to sort of follow a road and trace it back, right? Trace back these mythological handbooks through uh, through Hamilton, through Fraser, through Bullfinch. Um, trace it back through Renaissance artists. Uh, you know, the the Boccaccio's Birth of Venus. Um, Botticelli, sorry, Botticelli's Birth of Venus. Um, we could look at Botticelli or Boccaccio's, excuse me, uh, genealogy of the gods, which is itself mirrored and built on um, these ancient handbooks. Trace it back through, uh, you know, the Carolingian Renaissance. Um, uh, we could go back into the late antique world. I mean, these things connect, and we'll stop in Rome, but we don't, you know, we'll make a pit stop. But we don't stop there because we keep going back, right? The Romans connected themselves to the Greeks and they, uh, you know, uh, absorbed and adapted much of Greek culture, but also cultures from the Near East, um, from Egypt. And, you know, we can sort of, I use Rome as a, as a connecting point because that's, you know, the place that fascinates me. And there's a pithy expression already. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, let's be real. It's it, everything does sort of connect back. I mean, not everything, um, but so many th the things I'm interested, the, the interesting things, I should say, uh, which happen to be the things I'm interested in, uh, all connect back through it, right? It's, it's relatable. And so it's amazing to me. And this is one of the things that you know, we've mentioned the Roman poet Ovid, right? Who, who, who lives, you know, in the late Republic, um, really really the early empire he's uh born the same year that julius caesar is assassinated so technically in the republic but he sort of straddles the roman republic and the roman empire in the turn of the um the millennium but he feels so modern if you have a good translation if you look at the things he says at the ways he expresses them the sort of the problems the emotions from a lot of my students there's this kind of like oh shit moment where you're like this is a guy who lived 2000 years ago halfway across the world uh and it, you know he's a he's a person just like me he's you know has similar thoughts and feelings and we can say same things about greek tragedies or whatever but as you point out there's also a lot different right uh you know greece and rome you know massive slave owning societies um, societies with tremendous, I mean, even by Americans, a tremendous economic disparity. Um, it's, it's a very different world. I mean, it's not a great mm -hmm. world. Would I like to go back in a time machine and hang out there? Probably not. I wouldn't mind like looking in, you know, but those guys died pretty young. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a brutal yeah. life. It was, it was a hard life. Um, and so I think it's it's interesting because this is sort of in Percy Jackson. Um, these things are all sort of romanticized. I mean, you know, sword fighting. I mean, it seems cool if you're 12, like, you know, to actually have a sword fight and play capture the flag and, you know, maim people and kill people. And, you know, there's these things are sort of explained away. But I mean, this the, the culture that's giving us these myths are, I mean, it's a, it, it, it's a relatable world, but it's it's a different world, too. Um, and so it, it sucks you in. And so you ask yourself, I mean, do, how, how much can it matter? Right. I mean, you, you, you hit the good point, Sam. I mean, the history sort of repeats itself in, in weird ways. Uh, a great example is at the, the beginning of, uh, Mary Beard's book, SPQR. She taught, she compares, uh, this, this conspiracy in Republican Rome in 63 BCE, the Catalinarian conspiracy. She can mm -hmm. she compares it to sort of post 9-11 issues of homeland security, right? You know, to what extent are you are you or should you go outside of the law to deal with terrorists? I mean, this is this is a 
an actual question. I mean, the framing is different, but an actual question that the Romans wrestled with as they wrestled with ideas of, of liberty and rights and freedom uh, you know, more than 2,000 years ago. And so the history is compelling. I mean, the art's compelling. But the these mythic stories, I mean, again, there's this sort of the archetypal, you know, there's this didactic nature, this nature where you're supposed to learn something from these heroes mm. like Achilles. Um, but there's also, I mean, we, I, I'm not an expert on it. And, you know, I would probably challenge anybody who said that they were an expert on it, uh, you know, whether you're Nietzsche or Freud or whoever. Um, uh but you can read these sort of anthropological things into these myths, right? I mean, an individual going out, uh, completing a complicated task, defeating a, a, a legendary foe, whether it be a minotaur or a creepy guy in a weird suit that's trying to chop you down on the mattress. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is life, right? Life is about going out and doing stuff, you know, maybe being great, maybe being forced to be great but overcoming adversity. And in Percy's case, um, right. It's not just fighting monsters. It's, you know, dyslexia. Um, it's the inability to read signs when he goes to, you know, even to Medusa's like garden shop, right. He can't read the sign. He needs Grover to, um, mm -hmm. sort of decipher. And so it's this real triumph, right. It's the little guy. Um, even if the little guy is the son of one of the three major, uh, three major gods. So I think there's a lot there. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's certainly compelling. I mean, the history has borne that out and uh, Rick Riordan's uh, bank account has also borne that out. Uh, but it's good. I agree. I mm -hmm. mean, what's, maybe it's sort of a, a closing note uh, for this 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 first episode. What What's your favorite, what was your favorite part? What was your favorite moment or scene in this first book in the lightning thief i think for me i i love a good underworld narrative i love the part where they go down to the house of hades to you know confront like there there's so many things that happen there that there's a lot of you know bringing together of um you know a lot of threads are, are teased out um, in that moment of the book. But there's something I love about a catabasis. And I love I love all of the stories where there is this interaction with the dead, because I think those are some of my favorite moments in the epic poetry and the Greek and Roman myths. You know, um, there's all sorts of loss in those stories. There's all sorts of um, kind of revelations and kind of true, you know, nuggets of wisdom. You know, one of my favorite moments is um, from the Odyssey where Odysseus gets to meet the dead, you know, go to the underworld of sorts and, and consort with his kind of fallen comrades. And there's this great moment where, you know, he meets the soul of Achilles and Achilles laments the fact that he wasn't born, you know, the the you know the the farm a farmhand you know a no name nobody because he would have had a better life than being the most well known of all the greek heroes like i think there are so many of those little moments um that i love so much um you know a the my my undergraduate department had a saying as kind of like the the drumbeat of the department it was mathe pothane learn to suffer um and is this kind of you know it sounds really dark you know some people that's would awesome say, <laughs> yeah exactly um you know some people would say oh this is you know classicist being like oh it's so hard to learn greek and whatnot but the actual meaning of this is like one of the values of studying this is trying to come to terms with what actually happens in people's life um, you will face hardships, you'll face adversity, you will have truly difficult things happen to you, and you need to prepare yourself for that to be able to endure, and one way in which we do this is by studying the past. Um, 
And I think I, I, I love that expression. That's something that I, I hold very close to the way I live my life, my own identity. And um, I think is a great kind of aligns nicely with these descents into the underworld, because you get to see what does my life become? Like, what will my life amount to in the end? Um, kind of a, a foreshadowing and kind of a chance to rectify and change that. So there you go. That's a long answer. But I really love Percy, Annabeth, and Grover going down to Hades. Do you do you buy Hades being the entrance to the underworld being in L.A.? Does that does that feel right to you? I, I've never been to L.A., so I, I can't confirm or deny you know, Mount Olympus being at the top of the Empire State Building, do I think, you know, I think, you know, those two things, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of baggage with those two locations. And I, I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Listen, I'm a, I'm a boy from the Midwest and South. And so I like the middle of the country. So I'll leave, I'll leave the coast to be. I'm just glad they stopped in Denver. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not my favorite scene, but I did appreciate the fact that Denver, I mean, we both, we both live in Colorado. Neither one of us is from Colorado, but the, uh, you know, in Denver, they're like at a diner and Hades rolls up with like shotguns on his like bike and like a giant hunting knife on his like thigh. And he like threatens the waitress at the like diner. And I mean, I, Perhaps it's because Denver is in the middle of the country and, you know, I-70 goes right through it. But I don't know. Is that a comment on, like, would that have happened in, like, a diner in, like, Massachusetts, where I'm from? So no shade on Massachusetts. But it felt like, a, you know, appointed, like, this is what happens in Denver. Well, I guess I, I, think, I think Aries even says something about. I love Denver or I love America or something. Cause I can, yeah. He likes know. America because it's violent in America. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then, and then they get on like that, uh, that uh, truck with like the abused animals yeah. uh, after they go to the, like the sort of decrepit water park. Uh, so yeah, listen, if you were not coming uh, to Denver because you had a bad impression of it from the lightning thief, uh, I would encourage you to give it a second chance. Um, or at least come to Boulder. Boulder's lovely. Uh, you know, there's beautiful mountains and all sorts of things. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. And, and maybe this is a good way of sort of closing. It's just, I know we mentioned on them before, but there's there are all these connections, these these sort of dated references, right? To you know, there's a the, as I earlier I mentioned the 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 IM the instant message. Uh, mm -hmm joke we said no it's not instant message it's iris message but of course uh by 2023 i don't think anyone uses instant messenger anymore right um there's all sorts of things like that that you wonder you know how do they hold up is this going to be a sort of evergreen story um i think if you you know and i don't want to go too deep because this is a whole different podcast show but i mean you look at something like harry potter um, where the whole sort of magical world, you know, you, you sort of leave contemporary Britain, US, wherever you are, and you go into this wizarding world that is, you know, you're essentially back in the, you know, the 18th century or something, um, 19th century. It, it, maybe it feels more evergreen in the sort of the content. I mean, when I read Harry Potter with my son or something, there's not like references to like, you know, weird late nineties phenomena. You know, there's not like uh, references to strange. It's bands. so dated. Yeah. It's dated it's, beyond your, yeah. your lifetime. And so, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. as long as you under, you know, you recognize names like, you know, Agrippa the great or something, or, uh, Nicholas Flamel, who's been alive forever, Dumbledore's uh, mm -hmm. partner. For those of you who have read those books, um, yeah, I mean, so do you think? Do you think this sort of it? Do you think that it? Uh, you know, having these con these contemporary connections, you know, in two thousand and five, maybe makes it feel super relatable because it again, it's you have this democratization of the myth where you're like. 
this is my life, right? Like I, everything Percy is like, you know, running to get enchiladas with Grover at the lunch line, drinking Coke, you know, eating blue jelly beans, uh, using instant messenger. Like, is this like, you feel so like, oh my God, this is me. But then 20 years later, you know, if you're picking it up for the first time, um, or you're picking it up for the second time, maybe you're like, yeah, this is, this certainly feels like it was written 20 years ago. I mean, is that going to hurt the Percy Jackson story or is the sort of timeless, uh, the timeless narrative going to keep it kicking for another 2000 years? You know, I, I don't think it is a mark against the book that it is of a time. Like all things are of a time. And I think, I think that speaks to the relatability and the attempt to reach people where they are. Um, you know, it's not shameless brand plugging, which I think is what really dates those sorts of movies or books or pieces. Um, I think, I think, yeah, no, I, I think this, I think this book will, will still be read by, I'm sure that Gen Z will read these books to their kids Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't think that those, those pieces will be so foreign as to, as to tarnish their, their reputation in the future. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, we're going to continue this discussion um, in subsequent episodes, looking at uh, sort of moments. We're not going to work all the way through these uh, through the books, but we, we, we do want to look at certain moments and, and keep sort of marching uh, through the, the at least the the initial uh, Olympians series. Uh, but you mentioned reaching people uh, wherever they are in shameless brand uh, promotion. So maybe this is a good time to say that uh, you know you can find this podcast, the All Roads Podcast, wherever uh, you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also uh, find us on our website. Uh, which will be linked in the show notes. Um, And yeah, if you like it, tell your friends. If you don't like it, tell your enemies. Uh, But either way, leave a uh, a recommendation or a review wherever you listen to uh, to your podcasts. Because Sam, what's the, what's the email? Uh, If people want to email us and suggest topics for us to, to cover. Yeah, so uh, I think right now the, the best place to reach us is at allroadspod at gmail.com. All righty. Well, if you're out there reading a book or playing a video game or watching a TV show and you think, hey, I'd love to hear what those Sams think about this piece of media, send us our way and we'll, 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 take, we'll take a look. Excellent. Well, all roads lead to Rome, but our road leads to the door. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.